This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 17, and I am with Jeff Tackland, longtime friend, uh, pastor, author, uh, now acclaimed author because I'm going to acclaim him today, so therefore he <laughs> is an acclaimed author. May have been acclaimed before, but uh, I'm gonna, I might take some credit for it. Um, and uh, I thought it'd be really interesting to talk with Jeff about a new book he has out called The Winding Path of Transformation. Uh, it's pu- uh, published by InterVarsity Press. And, um, and, and part of it is because his journey reminds me a lot of my own and some of my friends who have been, uh, not that we all have the same journey, we end up in the same place, but um, I think the, lo- you know, the more serious we are about, uh, about our journey and our path, the more honest we become. And I think the experiences rather than the reasons are kind of what, what drive us. I may be putting words in Jeff's mouth, but that's what it meant to me. Um, Jeff, welcome. Good to, good to have you in Vanderhalla today. It's good to be here. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Uh, so the winding path, well, first of all, let's talk about how, we, how we've gotten to know each other over the years. Um, nice. What year did you come to Laguna? To, you came to Little Church, which was your first stop, right? Yeah, 2001. 2001. Yeah. So you were there either before or at the same time that, that I had started going there. I think we were... About the same time. About the same time. I think we did. We go to a dinner party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? You're absolutely Glenn and right. Matt. Yeah, yeah, we did it. I was, in fact, I was not even. I was kind of here, like commuting here, but not living here yet. That's that's, that's a really good memory. Um, so, so as long as I've been in Laguna, you've been in Laguna, mm-hmm. um, and you're at little. Well, you're at Church by the Sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, awesome. We used to no, call no. Little Church by the Sea. Now it's gotten bigger, better, stronger, and so it's just Church by the Sea. But still little. <laughs> It's a great name. Uh, either way, I think the simplified version is probably better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you started out in Laguna Beach as a as a youth pastor, right? That's right. Yeah, um, six was years. That, was that your first? Your, so you're that for the first six years? Yeah, and it was kind of my second stint in youth pastoring. I had been in at a bigger church in Fullerton. Okay. And came here. And what was the church in Fullerton? Uh, also an EV free. Okay. Swindoll's old church. There you go. The mothership. Yeah, the mother. Wow. They they put the children of the mothership uh, members in your hands. That's, exactly. that's big. That's big praise. <laughs> that's right. So, um, and how did you end up picking such a? I mean, that's a lot smaller church to be your second church. Yeah. Well, it probably was where some of the the rumblings of this book were beginning. I think that um, we came here and felt the intimacy of a small church that wasn't really until walking in that I felt that longing to be known. Right. You mentioned, you talk about that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I was, because in the big church, there was a lot more anonymity. Yeah. And you know, I think that I would like, you're a sort of a celebrity in this small little microcosm where I would run into people that knew me and I didn't know them. And I think, I think the, the longing, you're kind of held in some esteem there that doesn't feel exactly true okay and so so the um so you wanted to be in a community effectively where you'd be in more uh, you had more intimate relationships yeah. and be yeah. in more better contact with people yeah i think there was a need i think i was looking for a job where i had something to bring and then i walked into that church and thought oh i think we need to just be here and receive and on the end you talk about the enneagram in your book and before we get into your book because i think this is good background um on the enneagram you're a four and i'm not an expert in this but isn't and, and you talked about that and how it places you as an outsider or middle person. Um, but does it also mean that is, is part of your personality that you're not real fond of just casual conversation? Do you like deeper conversation yeah, in general? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. And, yeah, small talk is you know 
takes a lot of work. Well, and I think that's the fundamental difference in a, a smaller church community, more intimate church community, and a mega church is you can find that intimacy, but it's hard. Right. If to join a small group, you have to do a lot of extra work. Where, um, and they're kind of designed for anonymity to allow people sure. to come in and not feel like someone's look, looking at them or judging them, those sorts of things. That's right. Yeah, it makes it safe, I think, for some people to kind of sneak into the back, which is which you is can't good. Really do which it is in good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody so, sees you. <laughs> keep the doors open. Yeah. Um, as we used to say at, at Grace Episcopal up in St. Helena on Christmas, um, for a church that started in a manger, you know, it goes without saying that, that we have an open door policy. But the uh, <laughs> that was That's a long awesome. one. But the, the, my point being, I, I guess it seems to me that you're built to be in, in more intimate communion with people than, yeah. than the broad than the bigger churches allow really. Is yeah. That, is that fair? For sure. Okay. Um, happy we got through that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a psychologist. I'm just guessing here. Um, one for one for me against yeah. psychology. Well done. Um, but so th- what I think is interesting is we got to know each other here in Laguna. We did have a small church, small groups. We've been on surf trips together. Yeah. Um, we met through, I think, our Mark Metherell, a good friend of ours, and, and his wife, Sarah, um, introduced Sarah and I to your church, or me initially, and then Sarah later, yeah, that's right. um, because they really like going there. They love the people and, and, uh, and being a part of that small, intimate, uh, you know, on-fire community. Um, so, and then, obviously, our friend Mark passed away, but, uh, but we've continued to stay friends and, and, and do things together. What, um, what led you... Uh, to shift your direct so and, and by I guess we should go to so you started as a youth pastor you've become the senior pastor at the church yeah and there were a lot of pastors yeah so I mean there was a this was not like a, a simple uh, you know step into it there was a lot of uh, this like it was like a presidential primary <laughs> it's like eighteen an eighteen year process really I mean I've been here for a long time and worn a few different hats along the way so yeah. yeah. No, and um, and the church is not that, I would say, not that political, right? No. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, people are listening, so be careful. But um, <laughs> No, but I think um, I think the church does try and have really really kind of more rela- some more relational community. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so at, at what point did you decide that, you know, maybe what you need to do is, was write a book about uh, the transformation in your own life? Yeah, I think that's a good question. In, in some ways there's part of me that probably would have rather not mm-hmm. and um just let it lie yeah this is <laughs> but sort of unavoidably by the way you know that everyone can read this now right yeah <laughs> it's a very personal book <laughs> it is very no i mean it, it was like it's the kind of book that um it's not even the book that i set out to write as much but um what was the of, book you set out to write i think the first chapter gets at kind of the theme of peacemaking, Mm. which I think was really my heart. How do you do that? How do you find kind of a middle road or a middle way? And in that was a lot of self-discovery. But I think having written that chapter, I kind of assumed that was the topic, even kind of sold the book with that in mind, only to find out the rest of the chapters that were coming out were much more about my own journey and where I was going with this. And a lot of self-discovery that was taking place in the midst of it. There was chapters that were written there that I wrote just kind of get out of the way because I couldn't help but write them. Right. And they ended up sticking. In, so how'd yeah. that work with... So And this is getting the mechanics of the book a little bit, but I think for mm-hmm. for for this listener, for the odd kick aspirationalist, part of it is the content of the book. The other part is the process. Yeah, right. Uh, we talk a lot about getting stuck and how do you get unstuck, how do you break through barriers. And yeah. writing, this is your first book, correct? First book. Um, so, I mean, a lot of people have an interest in writing a book, but there's a massive difference between an interest, writing a book proposal, 
selling it to a publisher and then actually writing, completing the book. I assume it was kind of in that, those were the steps that you went through. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and again, I think that there was a part of me that (laughs) this says more about me and my own journey, but was Kathleen, our good friend, Kathleen Falsani. Yeah. She was the one going, all right, you need to do this. And, and our friend Mark as well was always saying, all right, where's the book? When are you going to do this? Matherall, this was yours. This was before 2008. Yeah. Yeah. And so there had been a dissertation along the way, and I'd written that, but it still it's wasn't... It's like writing a book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little more academic. It was a little bit more safe. Although the voice in this book kept sneaking into the dissertation as and, well. And what was your PhD? What, what did you write your dissertation in? It was um, in epistemology and kind of this... An epistemology um, means? Uh, like a theory of knowledge. Right. How and do we know what we know? Exactly. Yeah. And how do we take sort of a moderate... It was kind of a moderate view, an in-between view. So... Meaning, well, I, I think what are, you the, had, what are the two sides of that conversation? Right. I think you, you know, on one side you have this foundationalism that I think pretty much everybody's seen through by the church in a lot of ways. Where they, people say this is the way it is. Yeah. If this is. You're, I'm going to build a. I'm going to build a wall out of bricks. Right. And this is the foundation that's irrefutable. The 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 assumption that cannot be unassumed. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. So that's going to be the foundation of my entire theology. And if I get the foundation strong enough, then no philosopher can ever deconstruct this. That's right. Because I've got deep enough foundations that no one can dig that deep. That's right. That's right. Is that right? Is that fair? Yeah. No. And that's. I mean, this is speaking in generalities, but then the other side is kind of more of a subjectivism. Like as long as it's true to you, then it's true. Right. And that's all any of us really have is our own truth. Right. And so just don't bump into anybody and we'll be fine, you know. So on one side, you've got this foundationalism that assumes that our no- our, the way knowledge works is it's a rational structure. Right. Um, the whole, by the way, the, the, in my humble belief, the big problem with foundationalism is the second that you say, well, maybe it's not a rational structure, you undermine the entire assumption. Exactly. Right? I mean, so yes. once you say, well, maybe it's experiential, mm-hmm. you know, which I think you allude to in this book and to some degree... Um, all of a sudden foundationalism, not that you're attacking it, but it starts to really unravel quickly. Yeah, right. And it's, um, I think in a lot of ways too, you end up setting up these sort of silos of knowledge because I think you can turn experience into a foundation. Sure, or meaning phenomena, you can use a lot of different things, right? Yeah. Exactly. And so what you end up with is these conversations with no overlap. And so I, that's where I think there's a kind of a peacemaking longing that's in the book as well like how do we learn how to have conversation and to speak where we're listening and the sense of empathy but with that comes a release of certainty and I think that's hard right. I think certainty meaning kind of indubitability like an unquestionable truth and what you find is that when you move away from that position you lose certainty I think it you can replace it with something like confidence sure but all of a sudden there creates the space where we can actually have a conversation. Well, and it also seems like there's a, I mean, for example, on one side you have, in the, in the philosophical world, you have the rationalists doing analytic work, like the foundationalists in your example. They're, yeah. they're trying to build these structures out of, out of arguments. Right. And on the other side, you have the continental theorists who are working with phenomenology and existentialism. So it's all about, at the foundation of that, it's all about experience, right? Yeah, right. And that leads to a lot of subjectivity because if you experience something differently than I do, well, that's okay. They can coexist. Right. Um, and so as part of what you're thinking about is how experience, because people have unique experiences and being able to hear and listen to people who have different experiences than you is important. Yeah. And, re- and reason, you know, how do you take these experiences we have and create some kind of theories from them? Because ultimately, 
Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just spinning every day trying to refigure everything out. Yeah. Um, is it kind of figuring out how to blend those two together in a, in a happier dance? It is. Um, but I think in some ways it's exploring from like a spiritual formation standpoint how um, the obsession with certainty has this way of creating a ceiling that we can't grow past. Right. And so I think that was part of the discovery in the book is seeing how um, we, we set these limits that were based on a sense of comfortability, a sense of security. Right. When really, in order for us to grow, grow required leaving some of those places, stepping into more uncertainty, stepping into uh, a place of really openness to growth. Right. I was with... Uh... I did Pete Holmes podcast a few years ago. And, and one of the things we talked about was, you know, why do people get so afraid of doubt? Yeah. And I said, you know, I think because we haven't learned how to love mystery, right. we become afraid of doubt. Nice. That's right. And it seemed like you, you act, I mean, this is one of the kind of ideas is that if there's this, well, explain to us, cause you, you talk about the winding path of transformation yeah. and that you use some charts to demonstrate that between yeah. certainty and doubt. And, um, can, so maybe you can tell me a little bit about, uh, you've got four sections to the book mm-hmm. and the book is kind of written in a winding path in a way. Is that, right. is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's great to read because as you're reading it, I think it, it, um, it naturally flows and there's great stories and they tie together, but it's not in a horribly, um, rigid pattern. There's to your point of, you mm-hmm. know, the three point sermons, you know, this isn't, uh, three points with three examples to drive it all home. This isn't a Ted talk as no. it were. It's not formulaic. Right. Um, it's really kind of an honest thread of how you how you kind of came to these ideas on your own. Can you can you explain why the, the four kind of sections of the book and why you broke it up the way you did? Yeah, I think that um, really that came from you know there's I, I talk about there's this concept called the Paschal mystery, which is just traditional within Christianity. Right. This idea of Seasons. Birth, death, and rebirth, and right. how there is a sort of seasonal circularity to that pattern as There's well. There's a church calendar. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and really, in the writing of the book, I think it, it does sort of finish where it begins. Right. And and yet, seeing the growth that's taken place, I think it's really uh, the book is about what God was doing in my own heart, enlarging something, and about the work that that takes. And there's really in some of those seasons, a necessary sort of disruption that happens that breaks up that comfortability where I would otherwise be tempted to remain. Right. And takes you into those seasons where it gets cold and, uh, and sometimes to walk away from your certainty and endure kind of these, these difficult seasons. Right. That's right. That that's, there's an invitation in there when everything in me wants to resist that and go running back to the summer. And there's a necessary sort of Entering into the desert, entering in those times where it's cold. Doesn't that become kind of a slippery slope? Can't can't everything unravel unravel if you're willing to unravel one piece of that that puzzle? Oh my goodness! I mean, I, <laughs> don't, I just feel like the slope is slippery no matter what. It just if you're not sliding, maybe you're not on the slopes. I think that's true. Actually, I think a lot of times when we look at something as threatening as that, it's denial of the fact that we're already slipping. You know, yeah. I think that that's part of the problem with certainty is it's so unconvincing. Yeah. When people are talking about it and saying they have it, there's no sense of stability emotionally in that. You can hear it in the tone kind of behind the thing. Well, sure. I think when you, know, when you notice people getting really angry, defending their, right. their faith beliefs in particular, 
you know, I think the question that has to come to mind is why, why is, where's this insecurity coming from? Yeah. I mean, how small is your God or the version of the God that you carry in your pocket that someone challenging it? If it's truth, it's truth, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think that's something, weren't we sitting here at this table with Pete Rollins one time when he, mm-hmm. I think he was saying that, that like the more angry the response uh, the more doubt it reveals. Right. Like you're pushing on their question. Thou doth protest too much. That's exactly right. So, yeah. Yeah. So in your journey, I mean, I mean and you can jump into the different sections. I, what's great about the book is I think it's a very... It, part of what the process that you describe and the winding path of it, the fact that, you know, success is never just up and to the right, even though it may start and stop there. Mm-hmm. There's all these valleys. There's these summits there's places of getting lost yeah um i talked a couple of uh, episodes ago about getting lost in tokyo and you know sometimes we need to dive into that lostness to really embrace it in a way um what uh what's the process of transformation what i mean you've kind of alluded to it with some of the cycles yeah Uh, so the first section was about glory and humility second section was the necessary seasons and then you get into the slow opening and the way of the river mm-hmm. um, tell us about tell us so 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 tell us about that a little bit yeah I, well I think I, I think in all of that the the slow opening I think is this awareness of being led right which is I think where there's even in the midst of some of the harder chapters there's an underlying hope that, that this is going somewhere. I think that one of the themes that you hear throughout is these kind of responses that I have to what I would describe as the voice of God, which I don't have too many of, but I have a handful of those. Where sure. It seems to come out of nowhere. This sense that... Yeah, how do you hear... I mean, let's mm-hmm. real quick and hang on to that thought. Yeah. Um, so we're going through the process of... Mm-hmm. Which I think... Because I think the process that you describe and the way you wrote the book kind of go together. The style of the book and the process itself tie together. So we'll, we'll hold that thought. But how do you hear God's voice? So you talk about, you know, you're, you're praying and, and you're asking God um, for input or advice or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, and it kind of starts, the book starts really with that question of, um, I was asked that one time when I was on a panel. Somebody asked, how do you know it's not your own voice? Right. You're not just talking to yourself. Right. And, you know, the, the first thought that came through my mind is that I think when I hear God's voice, my first reaction is resistance. Wait, it's, I don't like that idea. <laughs> yeah, right. It, um, there's something in me that refuses, right, that's threatened by that. So it's, it's typically not a voice that's feeding your ego. It's mm-hmm. a voice that's, that's maybe antithetical to your ego. Challenging it and um, asking it to decrease. Right. right. So there's a sort of possessive resistance that comes in. Reaction. Says, Absolutely not. And then coupled with a maybe more true voice that's, um, I would describe it as like a leap of the heart. Right. right. That longs for there to be more. And I think that's where I sense the sort of glory and humility are both at play when God is speaking. There's a calling that takes courage, requires more of me than I can muster at this point, and then asks for less of me at the same time. The, the, you know, the self-indulgent, self-obsessed side of Jeff that needs to shrivel. And is that part of how the slow opening, this third section, really occurs in your mind? That yeah. it's this, this part of you that maybe you viewed as a weakness, that maybe wasn't your strong suits, that didn't feed your ego? That weakness is maybe where, where God kind of makes a wedge and starts opening up your heart? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. Well, there's, you've heard of this guy. Um, I'm going to butcher his name. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He's that sounds about right. Phenomenal man. He's um, was it Pierre Chablis de Chardin? No, I'm joking. I don't. I have no idea. I'm just throwing <laughs> French words in there. He's this Jesuit paleontologist. That, oh, cool. Um, and uh, Rob loves him. Yeah. And um, so he has this idea that basically we're being drawn into eternity. That um, as we watch the unfolding of the universe that mm. we're being pulled into what he would call this noosphere this transformation but he writes this prayer this beautiful prayer where he says above all trust the slow work of god and as an evolutionist like you understand he's talking about the slow work of god yeah. but um that sense of how the work that can be trusted is the work that takes place slowly over time over generations yeah maybe yeah. And um, so is he thinking that humanity is kind of going up and to the right in terms yeah. of how we're progressing? Yeah, it's being pulled, although you can imagine. I mean, he, Phenomena of Man is a book you should read. I think you'd get a kick out of it. I will write that down. Phenomena of Man. And, and this is by Deschardins? Yeah. Okay. But um, Finding pens here while we're talking. But I think the, the comforting thing, he says, I think, what's his expression? We're not humans having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. But... That there's this this lifetime, is this life of being drawn somewhere. Mm. Ultimately, all of mankind towards eternity, but each one of us individually as well are being pulled towards, as Christians we describe as maturity in Christ, right? That that there's a sort of necessary growing up that's the way of wisdom that I think comes from this pattern of responding in humility and then in courage towards, towards glory. And it's becoming our true selves, right? I think right. that's... It's where Merton overlaps with all of this, I think. Yeah, you said that at the end of the book, you quoted Merton, and he said something to that effect, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. He said, uh, what did he say, the um, becoming a saint is... Uh, yeah, to be yourself. Is, yeah, is basically learning to be yourself. Mm -hmm. And what does he mean by be myself? Right, well, I think, you know, for him, he really understood this idea of the true self, false self. Yeah. Right. And um, so I think, I don't know if he'd use the term ego, although I think others might. Um, that's the quote, I think, mm -hmm. right there. Yeah, that's right. The problem of sanctity and salvation isn't the fact, the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. That, yeah, exactly. Well, and I think so often that's what you see, even when Jesus is interacting, let's say, with the disciples. You know, he's asking Peter, do you love me? And he knows the answer, but Peter doesn't, mm. right? So, so often... When I mean, you say that he knows the answer, like he knows Peter loves him, or he knows that Peter's yeah. going to deny him and still maybe loves him. Well, all of that, but yeah. knows his love maybe more than Peter knows his own love for right. Jesus, right? Right, right? So you go, that's you see his transformation taking place. I mean, there you talk about this Paschal mystery. You see Peter at this place of total humiliation and failure, and he's right about the place where that arc is going to turn. Right. But as he does so, there's a there's a freedom to it because a part of him has died. That part of him that thought he can handle it himself. There was this, yeah. He he had to reach this despair of the ego in order to move past it, right? Right. And it ends up being every single every single Bible character, but really, honestly, every single piece of literature is you see the same the same the same pattern. Yeah, in our lives as well. Right. We it becomes be... kind of a signature. You can spot it. You can see God doing it. So as you go through this, the winding path of transformation, I mean, 
you're going through these cycles of, and it doesn't just happen, well, correct me if I'm wrong, does it just happen once or does this happen over and over again in your life? I mean, I think... Is it cyclical? I think it's cyclical. I think it's over and over. I think you probably can, you know, like if falling upward, you read that Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr falling upward. He's Even at 65, there's, there's no reason to stop transforming your life, right? right. In fact, right. maybe that's when we really start. That's right. But he's, he would say at midlife, inevitably there comes a wound. And so he divides it into first and second half. And I think that's probably true for all of us. And yet that pattern, I think, shows itself year after year after year in our life too. Maybe right. on a smaller scale, but... Hopefully, yes. <laughs> if we're progressing, right. Yeah. And I guess that's part of the part of the what you talk about here is that leaving this idea of certainty that we have to have that there is only one way. Right. Um, a family member who I love dearly um, asked me about some of my other family members recently and said, "You know, are, is your family saved?" And I said, "Well, I think so. You know, um, <laughs> not up to me. I don't get to make the decision. No, no one asked me." Um, <laughs> and she said, "Well, they're you know they're either in or out." Sure. And, um, and I know where she's coming from, yeah. you know, and I, and maybe, you know, the foundationalism that she's experiencing helps her with, with other uncertainties in her life or other struggles. And I think there's a, there's a, there's reasons for that. And I think it's very healthy for, for some people. And this is going to sound, you know, if, if you're a foundationalist and then somebody says, but I also think people can, can have a, a what, sure. I, what I would consider a broader a view of knowledge, um, right. a, a view of knowledge that is more inclusive, mm-hmm. um, that it's yes. And rather than, you know, uh, no, but, and, and, and I'm not trying to be critical of my, of my family member. I just think, uh, I think you see that a lot when people want security. Sometimes they want to cling to this, this, you know, that they want to cling to certainty. They want to cling to what can I, what can I hang my hat on? Right. Um, I mean, what do you think about this journey? And I guess folks who maybe are clinging to something cause it's like a lifeboat. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how would this book help them? Well, I think that you're ready. I think when the the system feels threatened, you're ready for the like the whole cave to collapse. Right. But I think what you find is it doesn't. Right. Right. It's stronger than that. Um, the fear. Uh, it's the slippery slope. It's all this perception of what could happen. Right. And then what, what if this it, all falls apart? And right. what you're saying is, trust me, it will. Yeah. Right. And that's good. <laughs> right. Right. Like that, that something's going to break open there right. and that actually when it comes down to it, like how necessary that work is, I think that it feels like suffering. Right. And, but I think, gosh, if you, if you read through the new Testament over and over, it's saying, this is doing a deep work. This is what it's, is this what you're supposed to do? This you're, is what you're supposed, you're supposed to, do. to be wrestling with God, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's how, is that how Israel got? <laughs> yeah, right. right. That's where the name itself. That's where the name Israel comes from. Right, yeah. Wrestle with God. Yeah. And David wrestled with God, clearly, right? I mean, all of these Moses wrestled with God. I mean, the great um, Elijah wrestled with God. Yeah. Is that yeah. right? That's You're right. You're I'm not. Yeah. No, and that's, again, like you go, that's part of how we gain our strength is how we grow. And so we're trying to find a workaround and there just isn't one. There's no shortcut. I think that's another Richard Rohr where he says going from order to reorder. He, that's how he puts it. Order, disorder, reorder. Right. And he says, there's no direct path from order to reorder. Well, yeah, you've, it's, there isn't a paint by numbers. I mean, basically you're going to have to break it up in order to rebuild it. Right. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. And it's good. I mean, that's, I think that's James is going consider joy. 
right. when you go into that season. And I think, you know, in there I talk about like even in Jeremiah, God's going, look, you're going into the wilderness, but you're going to find me there. Right. And so there's actually profound consolation that happens discovering God in the midst of the winter, in the midst of the cold, in the midst of the dark. That's the treasures. That's another, is that in Isaiah, I'll show you the, the treasures in darkness. This, you know, it's funny because I think there's some versions of Christianity that try to avoid suffering or think that that our best selves are, are created in this avoidance of, you know, if we just, you know, before I was this one way, but now I've, you know, I've said the magic words and therefore my life is perfect and flawless. I think what you're saying is, you know, the, the struggles won't cease. The wrestling right. continues. That's a normal part of progress in humanity. Right. But, but, um, you know, but there's a, that's how we become better and become what we're supposed to be. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think that, um, you know, you think about the, the, this is getting a little theological, but, you know, justification and sanctification. And right. kind of go, we want to make this justification the whole deal. I think N.T. Wright says it's instrumental. It's the steering wheel of the car, but it's not the car itself. Right. And so this idea of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, that's unavoidably part of the process. And that's not a threat. That's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. And God's at work to will and work to his good pleasure. So... That working it out, what you find is God is in that just as much as anything. But it seems like that's a huge change in how that's interpreted by some 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 churches. Yeah. I mean, some churches look at that like you better you better be working this out in fear and trembling, or you might not make it. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're not. Are you not? Are you not saying that? Am I getting no, that right? No, <laughs> I'm not saying that. <laughs> yeah. you're, well, you're again, that's like either or, there. right? Well, no, that scripture right there. Work it out. It's God that's at work is this beautiful paradox, yeah. right? You just go, it, it holds itself in tension. And I think paradox often is the way scripture pro- protects the mystery of that. Like you go, well, you're never at risk. God is working this out. Right. And yet at the same time, work it out. It's like in a way, I mean, I'm gonna use the example of a, of a gold mine and this may be a little off, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but it almost, it's like saying, look, I'm inviting you to come to this this mine of wealth and riches and yeah, you're going to get blisters on your hands. You're going to have to sweat. You're going to have to rework some things, but there's so much you can discover here that that'll, that'll change your life. That's right. That's right. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. And, and in the midst of that, we're being changed, right? right? Like that we are becoming free. Our hearts are enlarged. We become more generous. We become more loving. We become more self forgetful, right? To where, we see others around us. So you just go, the work, the fruit of that kind of work, it's what the world needs. I mean, that's, that's the hope. And so yeah. you're kind of, you're reframing this idea to me of not doing it because you're being threatened, but doing it because the opportunity's there. You use the example of yeah. uh, John Muir yeah. in your book, right? Right, right, right. right. That's um, such a great story where he's visiting a friend who has a cabin in the mountains right at the time where a massive storm is hitting. And his friend is saying, this is why I built it, so that we have safety from the storm. And he looks at John, he's throwing his jacket on, and he's out the door. Right. He's like, where are you going? And John says, I wouldn't miss this. And he climbs to the top of the hill, top of the tallest tree, and just hangs on for dear life. And, and watches the storm. the storm. It's just a great story. But you go, it's, it's again, it's a reframing of that thing. You go, there's a part of us, the small side goes, how do I avoid this? But the part of us that wants to come alive goes, I don't want to miss it. And in the, I think in the, exactly, and in the, which leads to kind of in this fourth section of the book, you, you talk about, um, 
and you've talked about it throughout the book, but I think in the, in the last chapter, The Way of the River, is it The Way of the River? Am I getting that right? It's yeah. uh, part four, I'm sorry, yeah, part four is The Way of the River. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about how you, you love nature, you've got this long history with surfing and, and being outdoors, hiking, camping, um, fishing, etc. Um, does that lead you to not just look for God in, in you know, in, in a book, uh, in the Bible, let's, let's uh, call it what, you know, but do you tend to see God in a, in a broader way in a, in a, in a, throughout, throughout everything that you're experiencing? Yeah. Well, I, and I think as we're, as we should be doing, I mean, I feel like if you read the Bible, that's being modeled for us. Right. You know, I think it would be only that kind of the, the foundationalist epistemology just goes, no, no, no. It's just, we're going to base it on we, this one thing. Alone. We've got the answers over here. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't right. read the rest of this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> I think Francis, is it St. Francis who called nature the first book? Right. You know, and you go, it's, yeah. Well, Paul Scri- did as well almost, right? Yeah. Yeah. St. Francis Romans, was saying that based on Paul's. Yeah. Going, there's enough there. Yeah. Go look, you can see God's attributes revealed Everywhere. in the creation. It's They're right all around there. us. Right. Yeah. Meaning we're even to some extent accountable for right. it. Right. It's like, it's just right there. The beauty that we see is supposed to move us to wonder. The complexity that we see should move us to that sense of awe at God's design. He wants us to discover just his artistry, which is part of the joy of living, I think. But um, Yeah, I mean, seeing how it works and seeing the beauty of how it works. Yes, totally. You, you talked about fishing, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you were, you, your, your whole family was fly fishing. And you asked the, um, you were talking to the guide about where the fish were, and he said, well, the fish are over there in this in an eddy, right? In kind right. of a hole. Yeah. And you said, well, how do you know, how do you know the fish are there? Have you seen them? And he's, what did he say? He said, they have to be there. They have to be there. Yeah. Basically, this is how it works. This is how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because, and, and when you asked him why, he had an, a good answer for you, I think, right? Yeah, right. Well, it just had everything to do with the physics and fluid dynamics and the, it's where the fish is going to go and find a place of rest, right? So he's right. going to sit right there and you just throw it right there and boom, and sure enough. There they are. There they are. Because that's where they're supposed to be. Yeah. And I think that, you know, so, so you take this idea of um, a river where you're, you know, the, the river pulls you along rather than you have to do all the work yourself. Right. The kind of the inevitability of it, if you will just release yourself into the current. Right. And that part of, part of um, looking for God, beyond, you know, throughout your life in the Bible, but also in the rest of your life, is that if you will kind of... Is the idea that if you open yourself up to this inevitability and you release yourself into the current because of the way that's structured and the way it works, you yeah. will be transformed? Yeah, well, it's um, that's like straight out of Ezekiel, I think, where he has this vision of this river and then being beckoned into it deeper and deeper and deeper until it sweeps him away. And I think that's it's another great sort of picture of what God is doing as he's like drawing us in the fear of like wading further and further, the current's getting stronger and stronger, you know, and yet he's saying, trust me, you can trust the river. I've got you. Right. And so in a lot of ways it is, I think the the certainty is like control. It's like wanting to keep a foot on the shallow. And what God is saying is let go. Certainty is saying, if I'm going to get from this side of the river to that side, it's better be a straight line. Yeah. And the reality is you're going to have to let yourself go to get across it. And it's going to drag you downstream and you're going to have to find the right place to re-land. Right. But you can't just, you can't try and force it. You're probably going to capsize that boat. 
That's right. Well, and I think at some point... We're going to have to stay on the other side of the river. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and to yield in that way takes a tremendous amount of faith, right? But once again, you know, I think sometimes we're trying to create a spirituality that doesn't require faith. Right. We're trying to create a, a theology that doesn't require some sense of dependence on God for our sustenance. And you just go, oh, it's impossible. That was... I mean, Does that was probably the sin to begin with of like, I can do this myself. Yeah, doesn't it start to feel like an idol? Yeah. Like absolutely. it's something made in our own image to give our, to feed our egos and our sense need for certainty. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you, do you think everyone's aware of that? Do you think people are aware that they're doing that? No. I mean, I, I think that, um, I think too few are at least. I, I think, I think you see that in a, well... You know, you think about our country and how polarized things feel, and it just seems to be getting worse. Um, an ability for there to be empathy and people to listen to each other, and there, it seems like a lack of that. But Does that start from self-awareness? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you talk about in your book, in a couple different ways, is you talk about the importance of, when you talk about the slowness of God, God's slow work, um, or when you talk about the Harvard uh, art professor who requires that the students do this, um, what's it called, de de declining? De um, oh, I forget. It's it's the idea that they have to sit with a painting for three hours, three hours and do nothing besides observe the painting and wonder, you know, kind of immerse yourself in the art, let it wash over you. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it's um, a fabulous talk. I, I don't even remember the name of the professor that's saying that. Yeah, I, I won't be able to find it quickly right now, but I think it's, um, it's towards the end. Anyways, I think the idea, it's in the slow learning chapter, but um, uh, the slow work, yeah, you're right, it's 109, the, the slow work, the cross. But the, um, it seemed to me that when I was reading that and when I read some of the other things, you talk about going away on retreats or to um, monasteries, uh, taking a day a month in silence. Yeah. There's a tremendous amount of reflection that happens in your life right. that probably aids your self-awareness. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of have this opportunity to look at what you've been doing, how you've been feeling, yeah. um, and reflect on that and say, is that really who I want to be or not? Is, is that a form of meditation? Do you meditate? Yeah. And um, it's, it's a form of contemplation that really in the end is probably a way of seeing that the silence um, creating that sort of space. It's interesting, I've led a number of these treat, retreats now, um, taking people into silence. And on the front end, I'm always having to tell people, you're gonna be okay, <laughs> because they're terrified. The ego's going nuts too, probably. <sighs> right. Yeah. And uh, why am I doing this? This is a waste time of time. To yeah. be quiet is yeah. overwhelming to people. I mean, yeah. We live in a world where there is like literally no wasted space that, um, you know, anytime we stop and have to wait, our phones are out and we're right. answering emails, right? So almost we're looking forward to it now. Yes. Well, well I, think, I shouldn't say that. Can't yeah. No, no, no. That's, um, I, I talk in there a bit about Blaise Pascal where he, it says that, you know, this, this need for us, well, the, the problem with all humankind is that we can't sit quietly in a room by ourselves. Right. Right. And that we're looking for is distraction above all else. There's one major distraction we're all working on, which is, uh, you know, the inevitable death of each and every one of us. Right. So, I mean, we're always distracting ourselves from whatever's we, that we want to avoid. Right. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. And he, his point in there is he goes like when the king who has everything needs a jester, 
right? You know, then we're, we're all in trouble. trouble. Yeah. Well, you had, you had mentioned too what N.T. Wright had said. Uh, I don't know why we're talking something about he was here in Southern California and he said I don't know why we're talking about heaven. You guys were already living in it. Yeah, that's right. That was right at St. Andrew's Press. Right, and that's uh-huh. a, a little bit satirical on his part because uh, right. I mean, right. Um, he talks about bringing heaven to earth. Yeah, like the Lord's Prayer suggests. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And what do you think? What do you think the satire was in that for him? Well, I think the fact is. I mean, we know this from living in one of the most beautiful places in the world, that there's a lot of sad people in right. this town, right? And that you go, that I think that when you are living that life of distraction, there's, well, you talked about lostness and malaise. I mean, I think. Despair. Yeah. Doesn't Kierkegaard call that the sickness of the death, yes, right? Like, right? That's deep stuff. And I think you see that in a place of affluence. That's sort of, we look at this as like, this is the best the world can offer, and it, it's not enough for us. Well, in a lot of ways, the culture here is wonderful. Um, and as Mae West says, too much, too much of a good thing is wonderful. But yeah, the, yeah. the culture here largely is about escaping right. suffering. Right. Right. I mean, Laguna Beach has long been famous for not only the beauty, which mm-hmm. helps us escape suffering, yeah. um, but also the the activities, the adventure sports that distract us. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> that's the great thing about surfing is you yeah. don't think about anything else when the waves are good because uh, you got to stay on it. Yes. Um, but uh, but so there's, there's a lot of ways to distract yourself here, not to mention, you know, drugs and alcohol and other things that people can also get into in, in a community, any community, but a community like this as well. Um, when you think through that, so, you know, if, if people here can't be happy, as an example... Then what's the hope of anywhere else? Right. You can be as happy as you want to be, right? I mean, right. that's. You had mentioned in the book that in our high school, um, even to that to that point, uh, small high school, but there had been a significant number of deaths, almost where it was one of the higher percentages of deaths per per one thousand or one hundred thousand. Right. Anywhere in the country, among yeah. high school students, yeah. who many were born and raised here, right, who should have nothing to worry about or want for, mm-hmm. and are still finding that malaise, hunting them down, just like it does all, you know, all of us at one time or another. Yeah. A couple of those were like my kids, you know, I mean, not my children, kids in your youth group. group. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we know some of them. Mm -hmm. Um, so what's the answer? How do you, how do you, how do you respond or react to, you know, despair, malaise, depression, et cetera? I think that's part of it. You know, I think as we're invited into it and through it, that's part of the leap of the heart, right? The, the, the death of the ego is so important, but you see equally or maybe even more so God saying, I have so much more for you. Right. I, I use that verse in Jeremiah that, um, where he says, if you're going to stumble against men, how are you going to race against horses? Right, right. Which is such a great one. And you can hear Jeremiah, who I think is also maybe an Enneagram 4. But he, um, <laughs> he's, you know, you can almost hear him saying, who's talking about horses, right? But you hear God saying, oh, you're like way faster than you think. Well, you're thinking way too small. Yeah. You're relying on these weak, the strengths of your ego rather than, than your weaknesses, exactly. which will become your spiritual strengths potentially. Right? right, right. So the balance of that, you know, in all of this is we talk about true self. God is going, like, who you're becoming, well, there's that verse that says, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind can comprehend what God has in store for those who love him. Right. And, and that's sort of the, the underlying invitation in all of this as well, is that the growth is something big enough for your heart that so often what we're trying to fill it with here, it just isn't. It isn't enough. Like, 
Lewis would say in the way to glory, it's like the scent of a flower, you know, that we haven't smelled. It's the, you know, the music that we haven't heard, something drawing us towards something bigger. Well, it's, I mean, in, in a way too, it's, it ties in the entire, you know, Joseph Campbell hero's journey. I mean, right. the only way you're going to become a hero is by leaving the safe village being destroyed and being rebuilt in a way you never would have imagined and never would have been possible if right. you didn't leave the safety of the village. No, and he says in there, I think kind of prophetically, that um, less and less are, uh, people are willing to take the hero journey and that everybody just wants to be a celebrity instead. Well, I think social media really, in a way, mm -hmm. kind of sets some horrible expectations for people that, um, one, if you become famous on social media, then you know that's the same thing as being famous for actually doing something or being talented at something or right. accomplishing something. Right. Um, it's people chasing the the end result, which most of the people who actually accomplish that, you know, whether they're actors or whether they're politicians or whether they're whatever famous in business or for being an author or, or being a you know speak, being a, a pastor, mm -hmm. um, it's not the fame. In fact, most people don't like the fame when they get it. Most yeah. people would prefer not to have the fame. What they love is, um, I think, to your point, you talk about this as, as being adored. Yeah, right. <laughs> Hopefully not, but that's a, that's a piece of it. I mean, all, all of us do like to be adored, even though maybe it's not healthy for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's um, it's like Turkish delight. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, yeah. Yeah, it's like... I hope this is C.S. Lewis. If you're secretly eating Turkish delight at home, Jeff, I'm, I'm going to come over I'm and not. see what's going on. Yeah, it, well, it's that thing that, like, diminishing returns. You know, you, it tastes and it's sweet, but it leaves you... Lacking, empty, empty yeah. wanting more, yeah. you know, and you go, that's, it's the problem with, it's the problem with addiction, period, right? Is that idea of diminishing returns, but fame is the same kind of thing or adoration. It's the same kind of thing. It ends up creating insecurity more than it ends up satisfying our need. It inflates the ego, which inevitably creates bigger problems than if it had just been left alone. Right. Yes. Um, well, hopefully so. we can abandon it. So what would you say? So, you know, if, if I read, um, you know, I, I, I enjoy Ram Dass. I enjoy, uh, Peter Pete Holmes' new book. Uh, I don't know if you've I read that. Read it. Uh, I yeah. have. I like him though. Well, but, I mean, but his his book has a lot of similarity. Where he's talking about his own personal journey, where he was raised in a you know yeah. Christian community, went to the right church, the right school, did all the right things, more or less. Made a, you know talks about a couple of his mistakes along the way, which we all have. Um, but it was you know his divorce, which was not supposed to happen if you were doing all the right things. Yeah. And it wasn't you know wasn't. Uh, necessarily his fault mm -hmm. uh, let's just i mean it, you know two takes two people to quarrel but he sure. you know he didn't he wasn't the one that, that broke it up um when that happened to him i think he felt like you know he got gypped like this wasn't how it was supposed to work and it mm -hmm. caused him to lose this this foundationalism this you know this yeah. structure that he had put his faith in and and i think you know he talks about the fact that he had abandoned god in order to find you know a version of a different version of god mm -hmm. um and so he goes on this similar and a much more expansive, inclusive, progressive journey. When we're talking about these, so one, I mean, does that connect with yeah, for sure, your does. journey? But bigger question, when we're talking about God, and this is the reason I wanted to bring the Pete thing up, he talks about God in a much more kind of um, a broader way, more generic way. You talk about God in a variety of ways in your book, mm -hmm. a personal God that, that talks to you, mm -hmm. um, a God of the Bible, mm -hmm. which is more of a... Uh, more, more separated. It's, it's a God that's the foundation to the ideas in the book, I would say, you know, kind of more distinct from us than the personal God. And then you also talk about kind of this general, more cosmic Christ. Mm -hmm. How would you distinguish your ideas from like, if you think about Ram Dass versus Richard Rohr, 
versus this book, how would you kind of, what, what do we mean when we talk about God? And what do you mean specifically when you talk about God? Okay, I haven't read Ram Dass. Okay. Sorry. And That's I know okay. you're going to um, rebuke me for that. Yeah, no, no, I'm not rebuking. His basically <laughs> a classic Zen Buddhist. So, okay, okay. Um, so, you know, you've got a Zen Buddhist that's that's basically, um, you know, very involved in the experience yeah. and uh, and trying to get rid of the ego, mm-hmm. become nothing, um, seek enlightenment in a way without, without gripping too hard, looking for it. Yeah. Um, a lot of self-awareness and meditation, and part of the self-awareness is to get rid of this ego that's force, you know, that, that your behaviors that you don't like, aren't you, that those are separate from you and effectively yeah. and being aware of them when they happen. Um, you know, Richard Rohr pretty well, sure. yeah. universal cosmic Christ, yeah, right? universal Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you distinguish your ideas or what's similar about your ideas? I mean, one being rich, yeah. I would say, so let me just back up. So Ram Dass being, you know, God effectively is the universe. Mm-hmm. There's this, you know, um, this power in the universe and whatever that is, that's God. I think Richard Rohr gets a little more specific, but also has the cosmic version. Yeah, yeah. Where are you? Well, I like, you know, when he separates, one of the things he does, and this is, you know, he's being a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's true, kind of separating Jesus and the Christ as like two statements. Right. right? And so you've got Jesus. Yeah, can you explain that? Well, Jesus the man, Jesus the incarnate. Right. And then you've got the Christ, which he's going to say is there before the beginning of the world. Right. Right. So there's the and cosmic so, Christ, this this eternal being, yeah. and then there's the physical form that came and was gone. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, our church is just now going into the book of Ephesians, and Paul is going to say, "In Christ, in Christ, in Christ," and right. that for him is this sort of positional. Now that you're in this re- sort of abiding relationship, this is all around us. That, uh, it's immersive. In whom we live and move and have our being, right? So you go... You breathe it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that to me is very biblical. Um, and so I, I look at that, you know, as far as... And by the way, this is an awkward question. You don't want to answer that. So, you know... No, no, no. Well, I, it's where that probably Richard and I maybe... I would... I've never had a conversation with him, so I don't, you know, it's I just okay. have read we're his just book. Gonna, we're going to make a straw man here. And, and, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say, I think that he sees some inevitability there in the end to how this just sort of is victorious over all. And I, I tend to think there is uh, an aspect of the heart that God will never coerce, mm. right? And so there's a freedom that's there that's ours, that, um, so, so Richard might be saying, hey, look, hell's locked on the inside, but it's going to inevitably become unlocked because you won't be able to resist. Yeah. Where right. you're saying, I don't know that. Right. It might stay that. locked if people don't want it unlocked. That's right. That's There's that I much grace in, in the, the God that you, that you believe in. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that exactly. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Felix feels like we're, uh, we're on the same page here, Jeff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're writing this book and as someone's reading it, um, it does find like it does feel like it's it's winding. You're um, you're you're we're following your journey, which goes up and down and back and forth, and you you go through a lot of very personal. Um, uh, you, you unpack a lot of the issues with your ego mm-hmm. and the way that you interact with your wife, with your family, with other people in the church. Yeah. Um, tell us about you know you mentioned earlier how. Uh, with politics right now, it's very polarizing, very, particularly in a two-party, extremely binary system right now. Right. Um, our houses of Congress don't work together. 
the news organizations are really split uh, along very propagandist lines. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find good news these days. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I watch Al Jazeera when I want to know what's going on in the U.S. <laughs> and I mean that. That's actually my That's one not one a more objective one that I watch. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but when you're thinking about um, how people who don't agree, I mean, my my one of the things. So we've we have friends on both sides of the aisle, and we have dinner parties. It used to get really heated around, you know. Uh, different candidates, you know, Trump versus Clinton versus Obama versus, you know. Um, and I started saying a couple of years ago, look, this is really uninteresting. I don't want to talk about people. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is, how do we build a country again? Yeah, yeah. Like, how do we get a unified vision that we live in the same place and need to figure out how to get along? Because mm-hmm. we have a dysfunctional government. We have dysfunctional relationships in a lot of ways now and a lot of the stuff. We can't have open and honest conversations. How do you address that? Because you address that really well, I think, with particularly in something even more um, sticky, which is religion. Mm-hmm. I mean, politics is one thing. Religion gets even stickier for, for a lot of people. Yeah. How do you talk to somebody that maybe ha- is a foundationalist or is, you know, if they're a foundationalist, is a more progressive or, a, you know, what they might call subjective Christian? How do you find common ground? How do you uh, hear each other and how do you learn to listen? Yeah, well, I I think it's an exercise. It's part of the wrestling because it's seeing maybe the thing behind the thing. It's so we so quickly get triggered by a position that we disagree with. I think some of it is as simple as learning to listen. But I think like we're talking about with silence, you have to have space within yourself to be able to hear. I've you know heard it said that. Um, if, if you want to be able to talk about somebody else's position, you need to be able to articulate their position to their satisfaction. That's a good, that's a great one. You have to be yeah. able to repeat back to the person, not only what they said, but how they meant it. Yeah. Nice. So yeah. that, so that they agree that, that you got it, that right. you're, at least you understand them, even if you don't agree with it all. Right. Right. And you almost go like, let's just start there. Like lesson one, you need to learn how to listen and and kind of like you don't progress to lesson two until you can actually do that. You until know, the you, other person signs off on your version of lesson one. Yeah, exactly. And which requires, I think, seeing the person behind the position, which is, I think, what we so quickly lose sight of the second we get triggered. Um, or our emotions get involved and our blood pressure rises. And pretty soon, you know, it's it's I it. Right. You know, the um, Boober has got that great book that's I I am now. Um, where he's talking about these kind of two different ways, how we look at everything objectively and we've lost sight of the thou, the other. Right. And I think that's what we live in when a the world. the whole point might be the other and not the, the, the fine oh, points of some theology. Right? That's right. The whole point, right? Or 99% of it right. is that, is to see the other. I mean, I think that so much of what Jesus is teaching is about that, to see in the least of these, that's me. Right. That's I, I love that story of the sheep and the goats that Jesus tells because you've got this group that get in the line for hell and Jesus is going, what are you doing over there? Like, you're my people. And like, <laughs> we don't know you. I don't know about these other guys who are all lined up here, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, but you're in. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're surprised. They even protest back like, like when do we ever do anything for you? And yeah. he's saying it was what you did to the least. Talk about like the cosmic Christ, like the Christ in them, right? To see, to have the eyes to see that yeah. and others. That takes, that takes work. Right. And but that's the whole point. That's the whole point. There's two, there's two laws, right? I mean, yeah, it's, that's right. It's love, love God, God and love, love your neighbor, that's period. It. Like let's, let's start and the end there and then thing. let's, yeah. let's start, you know, <laughs> that's um, right. 
so the so if that's the whole point, and if um, you know, if the idea is that maybe part of what we really have to focus on is listening to somebody else rather than trying to persuade them to our opinion, which is just serving ourselves, serving right. our own ego. Do you think a lot of these um, structures that are built? I mean, you know, we talked about Pete Rollins. He talks about you know pyrotheology that we have to constantly burn down these 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 ideologies or theologies or structures that these you know that, that we build in order to get to the thing itself. Yeah. Do you do you agree with that kind of idea that we have to constantly be kind of breaking it down or being able to walk away or remove ourselves from it in order to? Hmm. I don't know. I, I guess what I'm trying to say in the book is I think that. God is always up to that. Mm. That that's part of the seasonal work is this constant disruption where God is leading us into that place with intentionality. So my fear would be that if we sort of take the reins in that, we'll maybe start tearing at the wrong things. Yeah. Um, there's a, a sort of safety and security of letting God lead you into the wilderness or letting God lead you into that place. Of, if that makes sense. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so like, so, so you don't want to abandon all the structures. Sure. Um, but, but maybe there's a way to, uh, to deconstruct or to allow deconstruction to happen without clinging to the structure. Is, yeah. that, is that a better yeah, way to yeah. think about it? Yeah. Let, I, let God do the deconstruction? I think that we see deconstruction as destruction too often when, in fact, there's... Um, I think if deconstruction is viewed rightly, there's kind of a, um, what you call like a messianic hopefulness to it of like, there's more. Right. So when something blows up at the church or in the theology or in the culture that mm-hmm. seems to really knock some blocks out of your construction, yeah. maybe that's a good time to listen? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there should be within that a sort of, it's hard, but a sort of hope, like this is about to get bigger. And so you're breaking into something new and that's exciting. And Do you feel like we need to resist at any point? No. Because, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of Christian... Uh, um, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, resisting, uh, you know, the different groups that are trying to change things or trying to take over the country or take right. over the church. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a wide variety of them, whether it's, you know, uh, people afraid of feminism or people afraid of, you know, people with uh, the, the gay community or people afraid of fundamentalism sure. um, on the other side. Right, right, right. Um, what do you, th- what's, uh, is, is there a place to resist or you think it's better just to let it go? Well, I, I think... Paul, like the way he says it in Thessalonians is he says, question everything, cling to the good. And so in a way with the question everything, there's like... Is that like the scientific method? Maybe. It's like... Um, Are you supposed the, to hammer away at things and, and make sure it's true or what do you think? Well, yeah. And I think, I think that there needs to be... That, that could even just be curiosity though. Okay. I, I think that... Don't that, be afraid to look. Right. And that the questions are okay. I mean that. Um, it and it's takes... not gay if it's on film. <laughs> it's... No, 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 I'm sorry. That's a... <laughs> it's. Um, I, I think I was just reading this the other day. Um, Paul Tillich, Courage to Be. Did you ever read that? I've. Uh, I have not finished it. I have All started right. it. Yeah. Right. He he says something in there, like courage. It's courage that roots us when God reappears after God has disappeared in our anxiety right. and doubt. Right. There's Some, this element of, of kind of um, an atheism to it, right? Where you, yeah. Where, Everything where collapses. You, yeah. God is gone. And then all of a sudden... Farther we're out there, right? Yes. And then he reappears. Yeah, yeah. Like Chesterton would say, that's uh, God becoming an atheist. Um, 
Yeah, Jesus is on the cross saying, Father, Father, where are you? Right. There is no God, effectively. Right. Um, and which is God being in it, becoming an atheist in order yeah. to become a, to, to, to be reborn. Which is just brilliant Chesterton. But, um, but that idea of the sort of the rebirth of a vision, right? That you go, we're afraid of the doubt because what it's going to do is collapse. Oh, I'm just thinking, who is it that says, God, save me from my view of God? <laughs> and it, it's the same sort of idea. Bruce Benson's definitely said it in his <laughs> in his idolatry book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where he talks about you know one of the great idolatries, uh, idolatries. Excuse me, um, confusing two words there. Um, one of the great idolatries is are the gods, are the is the theologies, the gods that we, when those structures become the thing itself, rather than helping point you to the thing, right? It becomes an idol. Yes. And we just had that at the. I went to Wheaton College, and um, we had a. a We've, we've had a, a number of professors. One of them became famous, a Wheaton um, political science professor, professor who was effectively thrown out um, because she was challenging the construct yeah. mm-hmm. um, rather than when it was clear she was being true to her faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you see, the question I had for another professor was, do you think the administrators recognize what they're doing? Are they doing this intentionally? Is this intentionally racist or reactive or political or do you think um why do you think they're doing it? he said well you know i'm not, not exactly sure why they're doing it but he said what it feels like is that they are willing to sacrifice people in order to protect the institution yeah um because i said to him look let's assume that what she said was um off the reservation was you know uh, flew in the face of our christian beliefs which meant she's not one of us which means she's not saved you know if you take uh-huh. that to the extreme of that community wouldn't we want to say, hey, wait, doors are open, come back, let's figure this out, let's, we don't want to lose you because you're one, you know, mm-hmm. we want everyone on this arc, right. right? Right. But instead, they just shoot her in the back, <laughs> you know, kick her off the, kick her off the arc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, you know, why, from, our, from, our, from my perspective, I don't understand why, if that was even true, if what they were saying was true, that she was, you know, purporting a belief that wasn't in, in keeping with the school, why isn't the idea, how do, we find, how do we find a way to bring you back? Why is the answer, we need to cut you off and get you off this island before you contaminate the rest of us? Yeah, right. Well, I, I mean, I think that... I mean, is, I'm sorry, that wasn't really a question, but it, so it's a, I guess the question is, is that a form of... Is that the idolatry you're thinking of, or is it different? Sure, I think it's a great... When the institution becomes more important than, than human beings, right? That's... Um, I'm thinking of another little Lewis-ism where he's saying all these structures are temporal. They're going to be gone. These human beings are eternal. Right. Right. So you're going from a standpoint of time. Any institution is irrelevant. It's dust. These human beings are going to live on. Right. So you go, we look at those things as countries and all these things as having so much significance for us to God. It's like when Jesus is down on earth, he just never talks about Rome. He just doesn't even care. Right. And that's all they care about is Rome. When are we going to be liberated from The oppressor, from Rome? yeah, this political and, system. And he almost, you know, he rarely addresses it. And if he does, he kind of goes, yeah, yeah, let them have their money. Like, whatever. Yeah. And yet we... Whose picture's on the coin? Give it back to him. Give man. it to him, right? Yeah. And, and yet for us, I think, how easily we slip into that defending these temporal structures... I think it's human. I think it's natural, but we're being, it's one of the things that we have to transcend and see beyond. Do you think when two football teams are playing each other, God's picking the winner? <laughs> I, um, I'm thinking of a story. Somebody told me a story where 
it's true. It may even be Babe Ruth, where the guy that was up to play up the bat makes a cross on the plate and he wipes it out and says, let's just let God watch the game. <laughs> That's maybe the best response I've ever heard of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, classic. Well, I, I think that is to me that um, there's something revealing in, it's, it's such a difficult term, but like triumphalism is this like, we win. Um, because God's on our side, we God's win. God's on our side. Yeah, I mean, Bob Dylan wrote a brilliant song with God on our side that talks about kind of what we, the damage we'll do with God on our side. And <laughs> we almost always get that wrong. Right. Yeah. Right. It's the, uh, I love that on Lost, where they had the, the good guys. We're the good guys. Yeah. People doing the most horrible things on both <laughs> sides. We're always the good guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're always Han Solo. We're all... <laughs> Exactly. No matter who we are. And so a part of what you talk about in here is how you are this, um, what was the tree? Was it a, a, this tree that has the deep roots that's in the middle of the creek a bed? white alder. A white alder. Yeah. Why does it have to be white, Jeff? <laughs> Let's just say alder. Oh, yeah, right. Joke. <laughs> Colors. Yeah, that's the yeah. name of the tree. But the, yeah, just giving Jeff a hard time. But so, so you're this, this alder, this white alder in the, in the, that grows. It's a narrow tree that grows in the center of a riverbed, a dry riverbed. It grows a deep root because that's where it needs to be. And it stands between the banks. Yeah. And you said this was a metaphor for who you were, came to you while you were on this, uh, this retreat. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, Kathleen and I both, we kind of wanted to call the book a white alder in the middle place. Um, that's the it's a great subtitle. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, no, that's great. Um, but it, it was kind of the, the central metaphor there. And uh, as the story goes, and it's the first chapter of the book, but I had been um, kind of given an assignment. And it starts off with me entering into a, a kind of going through a real dry season. And I'm walking out into this stream bed, having been given the assignment to find something in nature that speaks to me <laughs> from God. And I had um, already figured out the answer to the question before I had even left the building because I just didn't have the, the energy. But walking out there, I surprisingly heard God point me to that alder and um, said, this is you. And I said, this isn't who I want to be. I, um, I wanted to, at that point so badly to pick a side. And it was as if God was saying, no, I want you to like plant yourself here in the middle by that stream, that place of sustenance. Is, is that, does that get lonely? It is lonely. I mean, being in the middle? Yes. I mean, I, I think that um, my spiritual director just, she said to me one time, Jeff, I think loneliness is just going to be one of your companions. I, I think that's... By the way, you're about to drink a, a Asahi extra dry Japanese beer out of a Wheaton College mug, so... <laughs> that doesn't make you lonely. You're you're one of few at this point. <laughs> I think um, loneliness I, that that sense of you know comes from part of that is rooted in my own sense that I'm different. That's the Enneagram Four thing. That's the everybody has something that I'm missing, and so you kind of see the world through that lens. So I think is part of that that you want to be unique or is it mm -hmm, absolutely. And the other half of it is I want to be unique, special and, and whatever powerful. But the other the flip side of it is I'm not the same as everybody else. I don't fit in all the time. Right. Yeah. If, if you were to tell me that I fit in, I would be offended. 
but the fact that I don't fit in gives um, you insecurity. Yeah, exactly. Well, here's so. cheers to that kumpai. I've got a, I've got a <laughs> dose of that myself. It, yeah. Well, you know, it's um, it's just part of the journey. That's part of the the tension that that creates. Um, I think that's definitely a thread in the book for sure. I mean, it's it's your ability to not have to be tied to a side, to be independent, to see each other's side, to be a peacemaker, to help create a bridge and hear both sides and bring them together that makes you uniquely powerful in the particularly in the in the church and the community that you're in yeah it's a small town everybody knows each other it's very intimate relationships (laughs) right there were five pastors at the church when i first came there (laughs) not all on the same page let's just say yeah um not that they were radically different but they had different opinions that they were operating from yeah and you know i think being a peacemaker was the unique tool that frankly the church needed at that point to kind of Build, help build some unity. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, and I think that has always been a bit of a trademark of the church, which is kind of Laguna too. One of the things that's so special about this place is it is such an eclectic, diverse community. It is church. a bohemian village. Yes. Yeah. And so we've got plenty of artists by profession as members of the church, and that creates great independent all, thinkers. Yeah. Yes, they're they're quirky and they're brilliant and messy and. And worth listening to most of the time. Yeah, 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 at least 50%. <laughs> no, it's it's so fun. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way, and right. yet it's incredibly complex. But yeah, but like true community feels like family, which means you're sitting at the table with people that... You're not going to agree with. Right, right. And that should be okay. That should be okay. How do you, how do you, how do you embrace the disagreement in a positive, health, healthy, and constructive way? Well... That's a good question. I mean, I think that that's part of a pastoral role oftentimes is, um, is pulling back, pulling people back into community with each other when they want to run, you know, that I think, especially as Protestants, we know how to split and go somewhere else. Well, we have, like, we have the opportunity. It's like built into our name. It's built <laughs> well, you know, into... <laughs> Roman Catholics can't because when they do, they're not Roman Catholics That's anymore. Right. Right? That's right. They got one option. Yeah. Right. Whereas we've got many. We can, we can make a new one if we want. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it has not, I think, served us well. Probably some things have served us well in that. But I think a lot of it, that sense of like the second I hit a disagreement. I'd go somewhere else. Yeah. I've got a wide range of options to dive into. And realizing, once again, I think that how that stunts our growth, mm. that uh, the opportunity of remaining, uh, the slow work. I, there's a quote I use in the book from Teresa of Avila where she says we have to like sit in our weeds with God. And I think we all have our own, so it's a, a willingness to see our own. And then also I think the, the empathy of seeing that in other people and then seeing past those things. And it takes work. It, yeah, that's uh, Dallas Willard says that the the gospel is opposed to earning, but not to effort. Just did a little selfie. Yeah, I, no, that's a that's a well. No, and I think that's right. Um, the real transformation takes a lot of work and takes a lot of effort. You also have to let yourself go in it, but you yeah. have to be willing to do the interior work as the exterior is being changed. Is that is that's that fair? Right. That's right. Yeah, realize that. I mean, in every situation, like you go into it looking for the truth. I mean, that's been part of the, for me, the discipline is, um, is I've received criticism a couple of times. Um, (laughs) (laughs) As far as you know. That's all I know. But sitting with that and the discipline of looking for the truth 
in it and being willing to uh, accept that, welcome that in. Um, if I can't do that, nobody else is going to do that. You know, I mean, that would be, to me, kind of leadership 101. It's um, reading this book right now by this guy, Jerry Canola. Have you heard of this? It's called Reboot. Is he the maker of canola oil? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Seth Godin just put this out as like a book recommendation. Oh, cool. And, um, I do. I have heard of Seth. I love Seth Godin. Yeah, yeah. Well, in this this guy, he's like called the CEO whisperer by all these people. He's a coach for all these. Oh, high, yeah, yeah. Exact guys. And um, I may have just read this. Yeah, tell me more. Well, he just says the key to leadership is to grow up, and the way that you grow up is radical self inquiry. Yeah. And um, and as I read that, I thought, oh, I think I understand my book a little bit more, because whether I knew it or not, I think the book really was several years of radical self-inquiry. Sure, because it's forcing you to do interior work in order to get to the ideas that you're going to put into a winding path. That's right. Um, I mean, it must have been interesting working with your publisher where you pitch an idea that they've signed off on and then yeah. the idea really morphs into something very different. Was the publisher cool with the whole progress or were they... Uh, they have a lot of questions along the way. What was their winding path like? <laughs> After a year, I turned in the manuscript. And this I think this is kind of a classic, but um, my editor said, Jeff, it's beautiful. What's it about? <laughs> I took a lot... Of, so I like to read with a pen. Yeah. And I was reading because I knew we were going to be talking about it. So yeah. I had to actually be, not just read it and enjoy it, but kind of be aware of it a little bit. Yeah. Um, it does in in a at first when you're reading it. Here's what I say: It's first when I was reading it, I was maybe. I hope this doesn't ruin it. Um, it was kind of a like not annoying, but I was a little bit like, wait, where is this going? Right, right. And I think a point of the structure is that the winding path is. I mean, we talked about this, but when you talk about Marshall McLuhan, who says the medium is the message. Right. Um, maybe a little different context, but I think the idea of that context here is that part of the winding path of the book and the winding path of your journey and the winding path of how it actually works, the way a river actually flows, right? right? The way how it works yeah. is, is half the point of this. Is that, is that, I mean, you're taking us on a little so, journey that isn't going to be the three-point sermon. No, that's right. Well, I, I think I was reading something by Liz Gilbert on Instagram today where she was saying the writing is like where the value is. Right. And I mean, that is the way... It was for me that uh, my director was saying, Jeff, God's going to make you live your book. And I would say that was this kind of idea of a winding path became descriptive of the writing process. And, right. You know, and um, I was kind of navigating on the fly a bit. But um, but that's where the discovery was. And so much of the richness of the process came out of that. Yeah. And so... As you're going through this journey yourself, and obviously this book is out, and very, it's an excellent book, strong recommend. Please pick it up. It's on Amazon? Yeah. Yep, yeah. so The Winding Path of Transformation. But as you're going on your own journey now, and you kind of described how this journey works, what do you think is going to happen in your own continuing winding path? What's your, proce or what's your process going to be? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean... It, is it going to change? It's... Um, you know, I, I always thought, people said, well, what are you going to write next? And I thought, oh, I think I can kind of go back and take some of the themes and go deeper. But the truth of the matter is, like, I'm still, there's like a whole other book being written right now just in life, right? As right. you go through. And I think things I'm learning in leadership and things I'm learning as a father and as a husband, you just go, oh, this, 
this never ends, that um, we're going to just be traveling deeper and deeper. And it's, I think maybe more than anything, it's saying like, we need to have this sort of lens on our life that, that we are being, well, Richard would say it's God's school of love, right? That we are being every single day shown and led further in. And so, um, you know, what I said earlier that the book kind of ends where it begins, there is a sense of this going around and around, but it's maybe a little bit like a train going up a mountain where it, it comes back to the place it started, but it's maybe just a little bit higher up. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm hoping that there's progress to this and all that, but a lot of the journey feels familiar too. You, you talk about surfing a lot. I think this kind of ties into this. I was just thinking about, I was looking at this, um, Tolkien and Lewis had written about, you know, people were saying, well, how do you write a Christian story? And they were saying, well, it's, it's not about writing a Christian story. It's about writing, yeah. writing the best story you can. And you're, if, if you're a Christian, those values are going to come through in the story without having to name them or to kind of make it too like ridiculous, yeah. um, yeah. too, too direct. Um, feels like you're saying that, that that's part of the process about the writing is the message. The writing does deliver that story. Um, is that, is that right? Am I getting yeah, that's on the right. right path there? You know, Tolkien coined a term, eucatastrophe. Have you heard that? Eucatastrophe. Is that when somebody writes a really bad Christian story? <laughs> that's what you might think. Um, <laughs> eucatastrophe is like this idea of this sort of Eucharistic, sacred, with the catastrophe. Okay. Right. So this, <laughs> but it's in Wikipedia. It's like, it it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's, it's in the, he, he created a word that stuck. It's, it's a word you'll hear used, but, um, that idea of sort of the, the sacred catastrophe that takes place. It's, it's kind of like the, the thorn in the side or something like that. But I, yeah, I love that. I, I Tolkien was, um, more the adherent to that than Lewis. Lewis was willing to write something that was kind of like the spiritual metaphor, and Tolkien was always disappointed by that. Right. I think. Well, I, yeah. I would guess he may, maybe he thought that Lewis was a little too obvious. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Lewis maybe thought he, maybe when he was also you know, I would say that Lewis was probably more excited by his faith a little you know like it 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 it, it, it was his focus right. He sure. was writing all the time. He was doing apologetics. He was defending it. He was. He was constantly in the middle of it. And so for him, maybe it was more on his shirt sleeves. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so it, it was, That's, it just became more obvious in his writing. Where I think for insightful. Tolkien, it was more a reflective faith. Yeah. It was, it was, he was born into it. And is that right? I mean, yeah, it was kind no, of more right. like a part of who he was rather than something he picked up later. Well, you almost could see a sort of maturity of faith in Tolkien. Right. Where he wasn't so worried about it. Yeah. And a little bit more zeal in mm, Lewis, mm. having kind of just discovered it. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I mean, I think that gets to the idea that when we talk about like maturity, these but are But they not, were still friends, yeah. Yeah, yeah, dear friends. And right. then, yeah, but I, I, I think that it's, uh, the, that time has this maturation of creating this kind of sage-like wisdom. And maybe you see a little more of that in Tolkien at first than in Lewis. Well, I, I also think, um, you know, when Lord of the Rings became so popular, one, because it's just one of the greatest, you know, stories ever written. Yeah. One of the great trilogies. Um, you know, I, I think the, in particularly even against the Hobbit, which is a children's story, which is wonderful, but Lord of the Rings is just a much bigger, broader, deeper, immersive story. Right. right. It's, it's a real legend. Um, 
I think, you know, there was, it seems like there were a lot of evangelical Christians that jumped to, well, then we got to make movies about, you know, the line, you know, the, the C.S. Lewis books. Right. Because we don't want people to miss, you know, hey, if Led Zeppelin likes, likes Tolkien, maybe people are missing <laughs> the point here. Um, or maybe they're getting the point, I would say. But the, um, mm-hmm. I, th- I feel like people are like, no, no, we've we got to make sure that we say it. We've got to make sure that we pin the tail on the donkey, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, I was with the president of Phil Reichen, current president of Wheaton College, a while back, and we were talking about Growers First. And I said, you know, look, we take a very Franciscan approach to the way we work in the world because in the equatorial belt you can't be... You can't have Christ in your shirt sleeves everywhere and go everywhere, mm-hmm. right? right? Maybe if you do the good work, you, you learn the questions. Um, and I quoted St. Francis saying, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. And his response was, but you got to use words. Huh. And, um, and I can see where he's coming from. That's a specific point of view in the evangelical Christian faith. But do you feel like when Tolkien became so popularized and so, I mean, it became this blockbuster that that kind of forced the people like, yeah, but... Tolkien didn't say it like he didn't he didn't articulate sure. it and Lewis kind of does yeah do you feel like that was a you I mean I don't know if I'm asking a question that's unnecessary but do you feel like that kind of there's a reaction to Tolkien that way that maybe um Lewis also reacted against yeah well I think you know when we talk about like in the book kind of this idea of the slow work of God I think that Tolkien had a sense of like that deeper work and was right. willing to let people discover it which I think there's a lot of wisdom. I think when we Because then you tell, feel like it's your own. Yes, exactly. It, whereas the sort of fill in the blanks, we want to make you sure you get the answers right, which I feel like <laughs> evangelicalism has kind of fallen into that well, trap. Well, there's a lot like, of counting going on. Yeah. How many right. people are in the pews? How many souls do we save? Yeah. I think um, uh, Oswald Chambers addresses this um, in his uh, Warning Against Wantoning, where he talks about this idea that, you know, if we're counting souls saved you might be very careful because you might start to believe that you're the one doing the saving. Yeah. Gosh, that's good. Right. I haven't read that, but that's, that's versus discipleship, which is all about helping people on a journey rather than trying to be the savior for them. Right. Um, and I think what, and and, and I, I think what you're saying is look, real discipleship is deep work. Yes. Right. And that's the slow work of God. Yeah. Deep roots. Convincing somebody by your argument, convincing somebody by an emotional speech, um, particularly people looking for lifeboats, not that hard to do. And you can, you can put those numbers on the scoreboard, but that's really not the work. According to Oswald Chambers, and yeah. maybe what you're saying is that's, I mean, not bad work, but it's really not the work that we're called to do. Right. I, I think or I, I use this example. No, 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 that's right. I think I use this example in the book of like where mm-hmm. I was working with this guy doing landscaping and he rebuked me for watering these trees that we had just planted too much. Oh, right. Because and they need to grow deep roots. Deep roots. So he's saying, like, you put too much, you feed them too much on the surface. They're, they're not going to go down. Yeah, exactly. They won't go deep. And then the first bit of snow, wipe them all out. And, and I think that's kind of to the point that you go, you can get sort of a quick, immediate result, but it, it doesn't endure. When life gets hard, when the suffering comes... It's, it bails, right? You need to it's, let the tree wither a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Because you need to let it be hungry, you know? And when it does that, what it does is it ends up creating its stability that way. Right. Endurance, you know? And that's, you see that all throughout, you know, especially New Testament, this emphasis on remaining, which is all about depth. It's all about letting those roots go deep. Right. So I think we can too easily do a disservice of trying to make it as 
clean and simple as possible instead of really encouraging people to do look or, if i just give you the answer key you're gonna get all the answers right, right. Exactly. And you're in <laughs> you passed you're either in or out if right. i give you it's it's a true false if you don't get it right you know you're out so let's i'll just give you the answer key then you'll be in we're all set done yeah. off to the races yeah and I mean, we grew up through that era, right? Yeah, where that's where you'd kind of go door to door and you know, right. just sign here. Yeah. If I can get you to sign on this side of the line, you're in, I get credit, everyone's happy. Yes, exactly. That's why I'm doing this. Exactly. And um, yeah, I think that it's... It's like we're bringing souls to God. Right. Well, and, and really it's a way of us just sort of speaking to our own ego, feeling our own value, right? That we go... Look what I did. Look what I did. I mean, that's you're welcome god yeah i'm over here i did it it's done yeah you don't have to do anything yeah i got this <laughs> i got this <laughs> no that's right that's right and i mean that's what you're talking about with oswald that's exactly right like the second we start counting we turn it into a metric and, and the second we we feel in ourselves that man look what i just did yes that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Burger King crown, and man, you've just done it all. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and I mean, I think we are going to do that. And I think God knows that. I think God just goes, all right, well, we'll see. It's a start. Yeah, exactly. Can't drive a parked car. <laughs> exactly. You actually told a story. I'd like you to retell this. I think this is a really good one. You said that you were on a some summer youth program where you're doing a lot of evangelical witnessing. And you're, you know, you're trained to take people down the Romans road. Yeah. You met a Buddhist. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. This is, that's good recollection. That's an old sermon. Well, I've, I haven't been in a while, Jeff. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was the last one you heard. It's not you. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, well, you know, I mean, that was, I think for me, gosh, the, well, that was exactly it, right? We were going around. With a little track, kind yeah. of going boom, 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 comes down to a there question. There was a whole process. It was have the conversation, talk about God, go down the Romans road with them. It's a Q&A test. Right. And at the end, you get them to pray the prayer, and they're in, right? It's right. done. Right. Just Another do soul it. saved. Yeah, what do you have to lose? Jeff got five today. <laughs> yes. He gets he gets dessert. <laughs> so, so what happened with this guy? Well, it was this girl. And, oh, girl. Sorry, um, excuse me. I'm, I didn't get the whole story. No, and she looked at me and said... Do you have any idea what you're asking me to do? And I remember looking at her and thinking, Well, yeah, uh, yeah you got to pray the prayer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was the way she said it. It was like as if I understood the question for the first time. Like, what are you a- asking her to abandon in her own life? Right. Which for her meant what? It was deep roots with her own family, her right. own journey. I mean, I, I how's that going to happen in five minutes? Right, exactly. Or fifteen, or thirty, or two hours. Right, and I I hadn't listened to her journey or where she's at or the questions that she's asking, and right. all of a sudden I was just going like, "Hey, you just say this right here, and it's done." If I do some street preaching and get this Romans road going, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I I feel the need there to say, I've had a couple conversations that have happened just like that that have been profound. Sure. Well, particularly if somebody's looking for a lifeboat. Yeah. And you've got one. Yeah. And by the way, maybe it's the best lifeboat. I'm not arguing here. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, right. Then, hey, you, it's good to offer people who are drowning lifeboats. Let's not be, yeah. Totally. Totally. But it was, I had it down to a formula that just basically, I think that sense of like I it versus I thou. Right. And I didn't see her. I just was out there on assignment. And... 
it was a wake-up call for me. I think I left there thinking, do I really understand what I'm asking of people? And I would say that started me on a journey that was actually incredibly helpful. I, it opened your eyes to, to, to the difference, right? I would say that every time my faith has felt deconstructed, it's always just gotten bigger. Right. Richer, deeper, better. So in the end, what felt like, oh no, ends up being filled with hope and all the goodness. You know, when he says, question everything, cling to the good, I think, oh gosh, it is so good. Do you resist? Do you find yourself being less resistive to change or to disruption or to that, that process now? I mean, are you more aware yeah. of it when it's happening? Yeah, I, I am. It's hard as a pastor because... Um, a lot I, of people counting on you. Yeah, yeah. They need you to be something. You mentioned in there that it's great for you to question, it's good for you to have these this place to do that, but maybe on Sunday at the pulpit isn't the place to do it? Yeah. You know, I just had somebody give me the best piece of advice, and he's an older pastor that I was talking to, and um, he said, you know, on Sundays, never go beyond your experience. What does that mean? Like as you're teaching up there, he, well, the way he said it, and I loved this, he said, if you're talking beyond your experience, you're kind of figuring it out in front of everybody. And he says, there's a lot of voices going on at that point. So if, if you're wrestling with a bunch of ideas that aren't connected to some story, to a specific experience you have, then it's kind of inappropriate at that place. Yeah, to get up there and preach that. Unless maybe that's specifically what you're talking about, right? But if you're like navigating through the complexities of your theology in a sermon in front of everybody. People shouldn't watch you wrestle, right? wrestle but you can talk about the wrestling you did to get to what the thing is you're talking exactly, about. Exactly. And that's what the experience is, is you're saying, this is what I've wrestled or this is what I've seen. This is what right. I've heard, right? Which is, you know, again, that's just, that's good testimony. Um, when you, when you go beyond that, it tends to be confusing and. Yeah. You know, it's almost not fair. You're, it's your dirty You're going to unsettle everybody there unnecessarily. Right. Yeah. That's not why they came. No. And to, to disrupt for disruption's sake. Right. That's not kind. Right. If you're in the middle, <laughs> that's a terrible example, but if, if your wife just threw you out, that's not the time to talk about where you are. After you figure out what happens next and what it means, that's a great time to share that story. Right. It turns into your own personal therapy session in front of everybody else. And that's like... That's a misuse of that. It's They're not psychologists, and that's not why they came. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I, I mean, I say that with like conviction going, I've done that. Yeah. I don't catch myself doing that from time to time. Or somebody else will say, what in the world was that? And I think, oh, yeah, I stepped beyond yeah. that. Went outside the boundary that I've set for myself yeah. in, that, in that place. Yeah, and it's not like it and was wrong. And you've got wrong. people in the church that you do wrestle with stuff with, right? Sure. You've yeah. Got some oh, yeah. close brothers. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I, I kind of make mention to that in the acknowledgments of um, that group, that book group that Mark started way yeah. back in the day, still going. Yeah, I was a part of it for a while. Uh-huh. I, I've been gone like crazy, but I think hope, I'll be around this summer if you guys are still meeting. Yeah, yeah, we are. Okay. We're doing another uh, Tale Hard Day Chardin book, The Divine Milieu. It's oh, cool. Awesome. No yeah. more, no more. Are you reading Piper right now? No, no Piper at the moment. <laughs> No, he's okay. not. He's on my naughty list. <laughs> I just did a tweet on Piper. That's kind of funny. But um, so no, so that's great. So um, so you've got a you've got a tight group of guys. You do wrestle with ideas. You're going to continue wrestling. And when you feel the ego reacting or engaging yeah. through your meditation, through your reflection, 
you start you're aware of that now and you know what to do with that yeah yeah and that's that's it is knowing like where to unpack that and that's being in spiritual direction for me has been super helpful because that really is like this what spiritual direction you know we protestants they we've like only stumbled into this in the last couple of years but the the catholics have had a great easterns and the romans have been doing it for a while that's right and um but really, in its essence, it's like a kind of companion on your journey that just really holds a mirror up to you. It's not counseling. It's not therapy. It's like it's a space. repeating back to you what you're saying. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it <laughs> is. And you, eyes. you hear it for the first Are time. Are you hearing yourself? Yeah, right. No, I mean, really, like when it comes to direction, you could just simply repeat back to them the last five words they said. And it's amazing how that opens up so <laughs> you much. You just said this. Am I getting this right? <laughs> yes. That's all you really have to do. And it's a gift. Um, but I think there's a sort of non-judgmental presence. No, no. That yeah, that was probably that. not how you say it. <laughs> That's how my wife might... No, Sarah's great. That's how I might say it to my wife when I'm a being a bad boy. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you talk in here um, about spiritual direction, about your journey, about where you're going. You talk about getting outside. I did want to get into the surfing a little bit. Yeah. You talk about going to Rio Nexpa, which is one of my favorite waves on the on, I think on we've mainland surfed Mexico. there together. Yeah. 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 And there were some, there were some beefy days there. Yeah. Well... Again, I think this gets at like kind of. This is a, this is just to set it up. This is a left-hand point break uh-huh. that is on a river mouth in mainland Mexico, mm-hmm. in a town basically run by drug dealers. Yeah, this um, is true. But but gentle <laughs> drug dealers. They they're pretty nice to the tourist surfers. Right. right. We, we've never had incidents with anybody there, but you got to be a little careful where mm-hmm. you. Right, you don't you see cops, at? you see like really nice trucks with guys with AK-47s yeah. in the back. And you don't honk at people up there. Yeah, that's right. But the wave is amazing. It's amazing. Big, and it, it's like uh, Ian Cairns, I think, described it as uh, a left-hand sunset yeah. uh, sunset beach. Meaning it's a, it can be, I mean, I'm not sure it'd be second reef sunset, but it can be a big inside sunset, like a big barrel that just wraps and... Uh, and it will take you on a ride if, if you're not careful. Yeah, yeah. So, so set us up. So tell us about, about Well, I was glad. I brought a friend's board, like a 7-2. So this is your step up. This is your bigger yeah. board for bigger waves. That I didn't think I was going to need. And we get there, and the report comes in. And it's the, we knew there was a swell that had hit. We thought maybe we were going to miss it, and it ended up just picking up. And so we came the next day, and it was so big. Some of the biggest waves I've surfed. And a bigger board is important because it helps you get in the wave earlier. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And, um, and I just had such a good time that first day. It was so, I, I was scared, but you know, like paddling out, I, we had a guide, this guy Juan that was with us who, you know, you can look him up online. He's a great guide. I paddled out with him. I was just like going, please let me Wait, make I can out. look up a guy named Juan in Mexico online? What's <laughs> yeah, his... I can, well, <laughs> I can give you his last name. He's <laughs> got a great place to stay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a few more details. Away. He's on the internet. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. But, but he's kind of a, he's a notorious character. He's like straight out of an episode of Miami Vice. But, um, but anyway... It ended up being just this fabulous day of surfing. I had the time of my life, but um, but it felt to me. I, I came away with this image of how it was, how it looked, um, and then found out that because you been, caught a big wave, yes. you got up, yeah. you didn't fall, you made it, and in your mind, you're like 
the biggest wave ever. Yeah. This is like your, your mind is probably Greg Knoll going left, and totally. and you'll you know, not speaking for you. Sometimes in my mind, I nearly got barreled. Right. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I'm thinking I'm so far back. I'm like yeah. almost like almost in the barrel. This thing's standing up in front of me, and I'm thinking. I just got to make it out of this thing yeah, like, yeah. without getting crushed. It's just huge. Well, by the way, from your perspective, it's a wall of water. Yes. Some of it is throwing probably over. Yeah. yeah. And and so you're just, you don't want to get stuck in that thing and get going through the spin cycle getting you know, spun around <laughs> multiple, multiple times. Right. No. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at one point I did wipe out on one of those waves and it snapped my leash for sure. I mean, it was just Yeah. Big, it ragdolls right? you and yeah. then you're swimming. Swimming. In a river. Because it's like a river Super scary. that's sucking you down the beach towards inevitable doom because there's a there's a massive shore pound if you go past yeah. where you're supposed to get out. We had a guy that paddled out with us that got took one on the head. Was it Tom? No. <laughs> Tom wasn't on that trip. You're thinking of another one of our first trips when Tom had the Superman jersey. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw Tom under the bus. I'm not gonna say his last name. It's not Berryman. But the uh, we, we didn't know where he was, so we had taken a boat to a point break, and he had just gotten washed. But poor guy. He was exhausted by the time he got to us. Well, same thing with this other guy. It was that wasn't George. Tom Berryman. It was George way. this time. But. <laughs> Yeah, he was gone. Was right? it Chuck? Like, it wasn't Chuck. It wasn't Chuck. Come on, no. tell me it was Chuck. No. Okay. And um, but the point of that story ends up becoming uh, finding out that night that we had been filmed. You and you looked at the film. Yeah. Worst thing you can do. <sighs> Just destroys every idea of how good your surfing was, right? It was so painful. Yeah. And um, I'm saying that from personal experience, by the oh way. Oh my gosh. You know, like I thought I was so deep and I'm like way out in front of it. You know, <laughs> it felt so it's critical. Like, dude, you're getting and the angle I'm, wrong on this. Oh. <laughs> if you were shooting from a boat, it would look like I was too. <laughs> but it, it changed the trip for me. I went back to my 6'6 the next day, like going, I don't need that big of a board. And I'm going to, I'm going to stay further back. I'm going to fade deeper. And, um, you know, you watch kind of the video the next day and the next day and you go, all right, you see progression, progression. Yeah. And, um, I'd rather, I'd rather get sucked over the falls and beat up on this thing <laughs> than, than be cheating and be dodging the barrel way out front. Right. right. That's right. So yeah, it comes down to what do I prefer? Do I prefer the wave in my mind or like the way it really looked? And you go, there's like a, a sort of objective truth to that. However you want to put it that, um, yeah, it holds you accountable in a way, but to something more. It's and how when, you, get when you abandon that insecurity, I mean, what was the worst thing that was really going to happen, right? I mean, it's not a sharp coral reef. Worst case, right. you might have got bounced off the bottom or washed down the beach. That's right. But when you actually commit to a better way of surfing, yes, this attunement with you in the wave, as, as Aaron James talks about, yeah, and you actually experience a deeper barrel or a better turn, Totally. It transformed. You're like, why was I, why was I dodging barrels when this was here? And it was only because of your fear of, of being safe, I being had, secure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that really, this hits at an important theme because I remember finally fading real deep on one wave and just getting so Creamed. covered up. Oh, so covered up. Yeah. So covered up and looking straight at our guide who throws his arms up, right? Best like, feeling on yes. earth, right? And you go, it's joy, right? There's just so much joy. And I think... And to be clear, this wasn't adoration. He's not saying you're the best surfer. No. He's just excited with you, for you, for being that deep in the tube. He's seen where I've come from. Right. 
you know, and was just thrilled for me. Yeah. Right? Like, compared to, I mean, we were out there with some really good surfers. Guys were just getting, yeah, so right? deep, yeah. I'm still, like, fresh soft. Like, <laughs> this is, you know, I'm not impressing anyone. And yet, when he saw that, he was going, like, well done. I'd also guess he probably didn't throw his arms up for the guys who should be getting deep tubes when they got deep tubes. Because you expect them to get deep right. tubes. They better. They it's better when, come out of it. It's yeah. when you see somebody who wasn't getting them finally get when you're like, Yes. Yes. He finally gets it. And that, to me, I think where this book kind of ends up is with this idea of joy. Yeah. And that being like that, that's the fruit of the work. And I I mean, I think sometimes we're so quick to settle for happiness, our own happy image when we're being invited to something way, way bigger. Yeah. Way better. Just let go. Don't yeah. grip the wheel too too tightly. Yeah. And be willing to kind of look at yourself hard and go, oh, Wait yeah. a minute. I, I can do better than that. I'm pretty sure I can do better than that. <laughs> Wait or a how, how safe you're tuned. playing it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> at all. I was, on a, I was on a boat trip. Uh, we were making a movie called Lost Profits, and I was not one of the uh, pro surfers on the trip. I happened to be helping to finance the trip, so I got to go along. And we were out in the Mentowise, and it's all barrels. And we were with guys who... We'll ride things I had no business riding, you know. Yeah. Um, scared the really scared me. Um, but Tom Survey, who's a famous surf photographer, was on the yeah. trip, and so he's capturing all That's these images, cool. including images of me and another friend of mine, Tony Popolardo, who's not, also not a professional surfer. Yeah. And we're going through these, you know, at the end of the day, and of course the pros look amazing. That's why they're pros. Um, yes. You know, Hans Hagen, Brian Conley, Reef McIntosh, like really great surfers. That's right. Bowl, one of the local Indo guys, and um, Adibul Putra. And then Tony and I are looking at our photos. And we're like, <laughs> Dang it. You know, one out of a hundred is like a keeper. Right. And and Tom said something. He goes, he goes, I was like, man, you gotta shoot a lot of photos to get a good one of me. And he goes, he goes, look, I gotta shoot a lot of photos of everybody to get a photo worth keeping, depending on their ability level and who they are and what we're trying to do with it. And um, you know, in a way it made me feel better. Yeah. Um, also was a big eye opener, always is a big eye opener when you, when you see yourself. Um, but I think that reflection is so powerful and being open to letting go of the thing that isn't performing yeah. in order to find not necessarily performance, but to find the, the deeper truth, the bigger idea of yourself and the more expansive, uh, opportunities for, for understanding the world. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, um, once that ego is gone, then, you know, you hear Paul saying, run to win right and you go that and you're not uh, winning for your ego's sake no. why are you winning why are you running it's um <laughs> aren't we already here yeah <laughs> no i'm sorry <laughs> no it's well it's it becomes all right so a little i i know we both enjoy this book by robert persig zen and the art of motorcycle love that book yeah. right like this coming together of these two things and that's where quality. the church of reason at wheaton college comes from <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> our secret society yeah that's amazing um <laughs> but quality you know i mean i think that's jesus goes look i've come that you might live and live abundantly Right. And so I, it's, it's, it's effectively, it's running to become this, you're like, oh my gosh, I get to do all this now. And so you're running to this opportunity to, to relief, to release everything you've been clinging to right. and become this thing that you were made to be. And that's the true self. Or like I kind of say in the book that these, this pull towards glory and humility ultimately leads to freedom to be that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, your podcast, this is all about breaking barriers, Right. right. And you go, that's, that's it. It's like these things that get in front of us that hold us back. And he's going, 
oh, there's so much more. Yeah. There's so much more if you'll just let go of that garbage. Yeah. Or the little sandcastle you've been building over there. Right. And we go inland and build something worth staying in. Yeah, exactly. Or something to that effect. That's, I've, I've been been around you for a long time, Jeff, and I, and I love it. And uh, I really enjoyed this book. It's, it's, uh, it's incredibly helpful. I'll probably read it a, a few times. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great journey you've been on, and, and you've shared it in a personal way, not to share the destination, but the path that we all get to walk. And I think that's uh, incredibly valuable. We, we like to talk about, um, you know, the, really the, the journey being the whole point of this thing. Yeah. Um, not some some destination. Hopefully we'll have a lot of destinations along the way yeah. and also a lot of starting off points and mm-hmm. the process is really, really what it's about. Nice. Does that sound fair? It sounds fair. It's good. Thank you. Awesome, Jeff. Thank you. And uh, question, can we get some pic- Can we get these pictures for when we promote this podcast of you at Nexpo? Yeah. Before oh. and after? <laughs> I want, I, we, we want to show the progression, Jeff. I could probably find a picture. Yeah, we're going to have to find some of those. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. Uh, it's been great to have Jeff Tackland on today with his book, The Winding Path of Tra- Transformation. And, um, you know, this isn't a spectator sport. So if you have questions, uh, concerns, please reach out. Jeff, how do people get a hold of you? Um, my email is probably a good way. Or yeah. I've got a, a blog, jefftackland.com. Where Your you blog can... is jefftackland, J-E-F-F-T-A-C-K-L-I-N-D.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Yeah. Uh, so people can get you on your blog yeah. or on your... What's your email, Jeff Tacklin? Jeff at LagunaEFC.org. Jeff at LagunaEFC, evangelicalfreechurch.org. Org. Yeah, you got it. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, is there another brand change coming for a Church by the Sea? You know, it's... Uh, no, steady on. <laughs> okay. Um, no, that's great. So um, so people can reach out to you if they have questions or, or comments it. or concerns. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. So please, this isn't a spectator sport. Reach out, ask questions, challenge us. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the engagement that matters. And uh, whatever you do this week, please be kick-aspirational. <laughs>